Welcome to Peer Spectrum, where we bypass the ordinary and familiar to explore the unsettled edges of medicine. Take us with you anytime, anywhere, and get ready to make your downtime count. Get ready for Peer Spectrum with Keith Mankin and Colin Miller. All right, Happy New Year and welcome back. Today's episode is about money, specifically your money. Now, if we're going to take a break from interviewing astronauts, Navy SEALs, NFL surgeons, and cutting-edge researchers to do an episode on investing, you can bet we have a very specific reason for doing so. You can also bet we have a rare and unique guest. That guest is renowned economist Burton Malkiel. You can Google him later, but here's a quick tour through his CV. PhD from Princeton, Harvard MBA, author of 12 books and more than 150 research articles, dean of the Yale School of Management, member of the President's Council of Economic Advisors, corporate board memberships including Prudential Financial, the American Stock Exchange, the Vanguard Group, and at 86 years of age, he's not done and currently serves as Chief Investment Officer at Wealthfront. Okay, very impressive, you say, but what does it have to do with me? Well, Burton is also the author of one of the most influential investment books of all time. First published over 45 years ago, A Random Walk Down Wall Street has sold over 1.5 million copies and is now, as of January 2019, in its 12th edition. When it was first published in 1973, Burton called BS on the performance and excessive fees charged by professional money managers and other experts. He imagined a better, low-cost investment tool that did not yet exist. Three years later, that changed, and today this simple investment tool is the vehicle of choice for 40% of the total invested stock market. Think about that, 40%. Even Warren Buffett, the Oracle of Omaha, and one of the extremely rare few to actually outperform the market, now recommends this tool for investors. What is this tool, and how did Burton Malkiel's ideas transform the financial world that we live in today? How have his ideas become sort of like a placebo control that virtually no one can beat over the long run. How can this 86-year-old economist help you avoid the time and money-wasting decisions so many others have made and will continue to make? Well, let's find out. And with that said, let's get started. Well, Bert, welcome to the show this morning. Uh, It's an honor to have you, and I've just been so excited to talk with you. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be here. So your book that you're most famous for is The Random Walk Down Wall Street. It's now in its 12th edition, which just came out just about 10 days ago. And this book was first published almost, well, four and a half decades ago. And when I go on Amazon this morning, if I type in investment books, there's over 40,000 results that come up. There's so many different books about everything from day trading to Bitcoins to marijuana stocks to you name it. It's all out there. There's very few that have stood the test of time. And four and a half decades, I mean, that's enough time to read your book, go to college, get married, have kids, have a full career, watch your kids have kids, retire. In other words, that's enough time to really test out the ideas in your book. Very few can say it that. Certainly, uh, it certainly is. And uh, I think one of the reasons for the uh, longevity of the book And one of the things about it that I am most proud is that the uh, book in its first edition recommended that people would be better off buying a simple index fund that held all the stocks in the market rather than trying to pick individual stocks or to try to find the best Uh, mutual fund. And index funds didn't exist at the time. And one of the things that I said in the first edition of the book was that it's about time uh, that they did exist. Three years later, Vanguard started 
the first index fund available for the public. And what I am particularly proud of is that the advice has really stood the test of time because, in fact, index funds have produced higher net rates of return for investors with less risk than uh, so-called actively managed funds, and the evidence gets stronger and stronger with time. Uh, the kind of scorekeeper for how well index funds do versus actively managed funds has been Standard & Poor's. Standard & Poor's does uh, every year a so-called SPIVA report, and SPIVA stands for Standard & Poor's Indexes, the V is versus active management. And uh, every year that they do this, they find that something like two-thirds of investment managers do worse in providing net returns to investors than do index funds. And the one-third that do better in a particular year are not the ones who do better in the next year, so that when you compound these results over a period of 15 years, which SPIVA has been doing for the last few reports, you find that it's 90% of active funds underperform low-cost uh, index funds. And in fact, over time, the index fund's advantage has been growing rather uh, than declining. So I think the original thesis of the uh, book was uh, not only correct, but in some sense uh, has been proven with the passage of time. And one of the things that makes me most proud you know, you mentioned that this has uh, been around for 45 years, is when people who have grown up with the book, who have invested that way, who write me about how they are in retirement now and are so very happy uh, to have followed uh, the advice in the book uh, and uh, are much better off for it, uh, and thank me now, uh, it really makes me feel good because I think, uh, you know, whatever we do, uh, uh, the pleasure of being a doctor is helping uh, people get better from illnesses. And uh, uh, what I hope I have done is made a lot of people financially healthier uh, than they might have been otherwise. Let's talk a little bit about this evidence, because I think this is really, really important. And for some reason, even all this time later, there's still all this temptation out there to go the active uh, fund route or pick your own stocks or any other number of schemes. And when we think of medicine, you know, we're looking at a potential new treatment method, and we're testing this, usually tested against a placebo. Sometimes a placebo is literally nothing, like a sugar pill, but it's not always nothing. Sometimes it's a benchmark, meaning the standard of care at the time. So if there's a better way to do a total knee replacement, you compare it to the way it's being done today. 
So the index fund really is that benchmark, isn't it? I mean, help us understand what an index fund actually means. It's, it's, it's a basket of stocks, but how is it picked? How is it weighted? Yeah, who decides who's in it? What uh, stocks are in an index fund? And what does it really mean to value a company? Well, the best uh, index fund, in my view, is one that doesn't try to make uh, decisions uh, about what, in, what uh, individual stocks should be in the index, but really includes all of the stocks and the weighting of the stocks uh, is the weighting of uh, how large the companies are in terms of their market value so that uh, on an index fund, a broad index fund, which goes by the name of a total stock market index fund, the stocks in the fund include everything and the ones that are weighted most heavily uh, are the ones that are the largest in terms of market capitalization. So like a company so, like GE, even though they've been around for such a long time, they went below a certain threshold and they are taken off the index. That, that's correct. No, they're not taken off the index. Okay. They are still in the index, but their weight in the index uh, is now very small because uh, GE is a company that used to sell at $60, $70 a share that sells today uh, at 7 or $8 a share. And so the biggest uh, companies in the index today are Microsoft, are Amazon.com, uh, are Google, which is uh, the official name for uh, Google. Is, Alphabet. Uh, Alphabet. Uh, so that's the way that it is. Uh, uh, that's the way that it is done today. And when you think about it, uh, there's really a very simple reason why index funds are going to outperform, and why the people in the active fund industry really want to keep the active funds going. When you think of it, investing has to be a zero-sum game. And by that, what I mean is think of all the stocks in the market. All the stocks in the market have to be held by somebody. So that if by chance I am holding the stocks that do better than average, it has to follow that since all the stocks are held by somebody, that somebody else has got to be holding the stocks that do worse than average. Right. That's, you know, that's simply a, uh, a mathematical uh, truth. So, therefore, it must be that if the index funds hold everything, they will get an average performance. And competition has now driven the cost of index funds down to very close to zero. Uh, you can uh, buy a total stock market index fund for what are called three or four basis points. A basis point 
is one one hundredth of one percent. So, uh, and how would that compare to an actively managed fund typically? Well, uh, that's exactly the point. The uh, uh, the index funds, and in fact, uh, there are now index funds that charge uh, zero uh, for a fee. So you get the market return with an index fund for essentially a zero fee, whereas the typical <coughs> actively managed fund charges about 1%. And in fact, that's basically the difference that you find in the statistics in returns that the typical active fund underperforms the broad index fund by approximately one percentage point per year. One percent doesn't sound like much, but what does that really mean to an investor over a, a lifetime of savings and in investing, say 30 years? I mean, what, what can that one percent actually mean? Oh, uh, when the one percent compounds and over time, it really means uh, an enormous uh, an enormous amount. Uh, Albert Einstein is once reported to have said that compound interest is the strongest force in the world. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you can do little uh, experiments like uh, uh, the following. Uh, it's often said that the white man really rooked the uh, 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 American Indian uh, by buying Manhattan for sixteen dollars. Uh, well, uh, had the uh, 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 had the indigenous uh, uh, people who paid the sixteen dollars uh, put it in uh, some investment that yielded five or six percent per year, they would have more money today than would be needed to buy back all the real estate of New York City, <laughs> including all the improvements that have been made. Unbelievable. And that difference of 1%, uh, when it's compounded over a lifetime, means that you probably have only between one-half and three-quarters of the amount that you would have had you invested in the index funds. So, you know, that kind of answers my next question. I mean, if, and you write here on page 99, just what you're just saying, no one person or institution consistently knows more than the market. And there's just overwhelming evidence for this. What in the world makes so many thousands of hedge fund managers, stock traders, analysts, fund managers, what makes them get up in the morning? How are they actually making their living? And well, you've kind of answered that that's already. Exactly, that's exactly the point. And it's the reason why active management will uh, never go away. Uh, first of all, uh, some hope springs eternal, and some of these people really believe that they are uh, smarter than other people. Uh, and uh, believe me, uh, uh, it's very easy uh, to uh, uh, deceive uh, oneself uh, it's very easy to believe that I really know more than other people. Now, not only is this a matter of self-deception, but uh, this is an extraordinarily profitable business. 
Uh, I often say that uh, the investment management industry is probably the most overpaid industry in the country uh, because they really produce very little benefit and they are some of the highest paid people uh, in the world. So what happens is uh, you have a financial incentive to try to mislead people, to try to convince people you really do more, uh, new, do know more uh, than they do, uh, and the amount of advertising uh, behind this uh, tends to be quite deceptive, but tends to perpetuate uh, their excessive incomes. So I think that this is simply a matter of the active management industry is very profitable and people don't want to lose that source of profit, uh, despite the fact uh, that the evidence suggests that they are really uh, not producing any benefit. So, uh, you know, one argument they'll make, which is not a good one, but it's more of a, an emotionally attached argument, is when you look at index funds, you're looking at the average. And high-performing people don't want to think about being average. Uh, that includes a lot Absolutely. of doctors listening to this, right? So it's easy to say, well, I, I want to do better than average. And I see people like Warren Buffett, for example, who do better than the average sometimes, most of the time. And help us understand. I mean, maybe an, an analogy would help, too. I mean, when we invest in the index fund, we're we're, we're not just picking stocks, but we're making a bet really, as Warren Buffett would say, on America, right? If we're looking at domestic That's stocks exactly right. and, and, and emerging markets. And we are guaranteeing ourselves that we will uh, profit from the uh, growth of, uh, of America. But look, you mentioned Warren Buffett. So let's uh, talk a bit about Warren Buffett. I had mentioned to you that over 15-year periods, the data suggests but there are a few uh, active managers uh, who do better than uh, average. And Warren Buffett has certainly been one of them that was in that top 10%. So I'm not saying that of these active managers that there aren't some that you can point to uh, that actually did outperform. And Buffett was certainly one of them. What I'm saying is that trying to predict who that will be in advance is virtually impossible. Still a needle in a haystack. For a needle in a haystack, and if you try to go active, you might, you know, you might be lucky and actually pick that manager that did outperform, but you're much more likely to pick one of the people in the bottom 90% who will do worse than uh, average. Now, Buffett did extremely well. Buffett's uh, record, however, was mainly a uh, record that he uh, uh, amassed in the early days. Over the last five or 10 years, uh, even Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway has not been uh, above average. Uh, he has had uh, a worse than average performance uh, over the last five years. 
And interestingly enough, Warren Buffett has recently said, the advice that I can give people is buy index funds. <laughs> and Warren Buffett has put in his will that he wants his heirs invested in simple uh, index funds because he is now convinced that those index funds are going to do uh, much better than average. So even Warren Buffett has said his best advice is uh, go with the index fund. Now, one more thing about Warren Buffett. Uh, five years ago, he made a bet with uh, one of the hedge fund managers that the hedge fund manager could not pick a selection, a basket of five hedge funds that would do better than the index fund. They made a million-dollar bet that uh, uh, Buffett was on the side of the index funds. The hedge fund manager uh, put together a basket of uh, five hedge funds. Last year was the end of the bet. In fact, uh, uh, Buffett had won the, the, the proceeds were going to go to charity, uh, and Warren Buffett easily won the bet. <laughs> and uh, his uh, uh, favorite uh, uh, charity, uh, a, a Nebraska... It's like a children's uh, charity or no, something, isn't it? Uh, a, a, a Girls Inc. Yeah. that was going to uh, help young women uh, uh, achieve uh, uh, the things that uh, he thought that women were capable of achieving, uh, got a big uh, gift uh, from the bet. So even Warren Buffett now recognizes that uh, his fund is so large, there's no way that he's going to outperform now. And the thing that he recommends is investing in index funds. And similarly, uh, uh, David Swenson, who uh, is the uh, head of the uh, uh, Yale University Endowment, uh, who uh, had outperformed uh, for a period of years, now he recommends exactly the same thing. The best thing for individual investors is the, at least the core of one's portfolio uh, ought to be invested in index funds. But look, uh, you know, I realize that investing is fun, and people will sometimes ask me, uh, are you solely invested in index funds? And I will tell you the answers. Uh, uh, the answers no. The the serious money that I have is invested in index funds. The retirement funds were all invested in index funds. But I'll buy an individual stock from time to time. It's fun. I don't think I'm going to outperform by doing it. But uh, you can then do that. You want to take a flyer on a biotech company that you believe in? Fine. But you can do it with very little risk if the core of your portfolio is invested in index funds. That's still my advice. It stood the test of time, and uh, uh, I think it will stand the test of time in the future. 
Well, we want to come back to that in just a moment. We're going to talk about um, you know allocation and balancing and a few other th- items that are recommended in your book. But let's just talk about you for a moment. I mean, you have had an interest in this your entire life. And when I was looking uh, just yesterday, according to my calculations, you were born just a few years after the 1929 market crash. Is that correct? That is correct. So tell us about the er- early Burton Malkiel. I mean, what was what was life like for you, you know, as a child? And when did you start developing an interest in finance? And how did you get into the career you're, you're at today? Well, I grew up as a poor kid uh, in one of the poorest sections of uh, Boston. Uh, I was always kind of fascinated with numbers. Uh, and even though I did uh, no investing and my uh, family uh, uh, had no money uh, to invest, for some reason that a set of numbers on the stock market pages uh, interested me, and when I was growing up, I would know the price of General Motors stock as well as the recent batting average of Ted Williams and uh, how many home runs he had hit. <laughs> uh, and I think this kind of started with just an interest uh, uh, in uh, in numbers uh, and. Uh, something I followed uh, without any particular uh, uh, interest uh, in uh, uh, or or ability, I would say, uh, to actually invest. And I would say that uh, growing up poor, uh, I uh, didn't want to remain poor. And so, uh, fortunately, my... uh, 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 mother and father, who uh, had uh, uh, not had anything more than a high school education, uh, uh, was able to enroll me in the best public high school in Boston uh, and encouraged me to uh, uh, get a college uh, education, which uh, I was fortunate enough to do. And who and are your parents? What did they do? You I mean, what, was, what did they do for a living? Uh, my uh, parents both worked in a small mom-and-pop uh, uh, wholesale uh, jewelry uh, business uh, where they were selling uh, uh, very uh, cheap uh, rhinestone uh, jewelry uh, this uh, wasn't uh, diamonds and pearls. Uh, uh, this was uh, a rhinestone necklace that you could buy for a dollar. Wow. And, uh, you know, you had mentioned uh, that I was a depression baby. And one of the reasons we were poor is that people weren't even buying uh, dollar uh, retail uh, uh, jewelry. No, I wouldn't uh, imagine. Uh, during the 1930s, and then uh, during the 1940s, uh, uh, you couldn't get the metal to make uh, this, so uh, that was one of the reasons why it was uh, not the time, it was not a very uh, successful uh, business. But as I say, I was, uh, I grew up in a tenement house, I was convinced I didn't want to be poor, And while I was a good student in college and my advisors said, uh, 
you ought to get a, uh, a PhD in economics and uh, be a uh, uh, have a research career and a, uh, a professorial career. I wouldn't have any of it because uh, I thought that was a way to just continue to be poor. And I decided <laughs> I would try to work in Wall Street. And I basically began my career working in Wall Street, uh, making a little money in uh, Wall Street. And it was that that kind of generated my skepticism that, hey, these people were extremely well paid, uh, but, you know, it wasn't clear to me that they were actually uh, producing the results that they said they were producing. And so after uh, uh, I uh, worked in Wall Street for uh, some time, uh, had a little money, uh, I uh, finally uh, did decide, well, I'll take a leave of absence and maybe get that graduate degree in economics that I was particularly uh, good at. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'll come back to Wall Street later, but I will get that uh, advanced degree. And then, uh, as happens with uh, careers, uh, uh, I uh, did pretty well in graduate school, and I was at uh, Princeton, New Jersey, uh, Princeton University, getting my degree, and they said, uh, gee, uh, let's give you uh, a job as an assistant professor teaching, uh, and I thought, well, uh, I'll try it and uh, uh, see, uh, uh, what, uh, see if I liked it. I tried it. I liked it. Uh, I then, because I... Uh, it was, the, was the pay difference pretty substantial, I imagine? I mean, this is an opportunity cost, to be sure, right? Well, uh, the point was that because uh, I uh, did have all the financial training and started to get on boards of directors and finance committees uh, uh, because I had some cachet as someone who knew something about the pitfalls... Uh, of investing, uh, I found that I could have my cake and eat it too. I could sure. uh, uh, have the uh, uh, the research opportunities, uh, and you know the wonderful thing about uh, uh, being an academic, uh, and uh, if you have a penchant for research, is you choose the things that you want to work on. And uh, I uh, then was able to do research in uh, finance, uh, was able to make, uh, not that uh, the academic life paid very well, but uh, being on uh, various outside uh, investment committees uh, did pay reasonably well. And so I was able to have my cake and eat it too. And uh, I'm very glad that I did that because it was in some sense the best of both worlds. Well, do you think, uh, you know, a mental framework that you had early on, do you think it was informed mo mostly uh, by being a child of the Depression, or was it just the skepticism you developed working on Wall Street? I mean, where did, I mean, not everybody well, would question no this. Question Some people that would. I went to Wall Street because uh, uh, I was a child of the Depression and didn't want to continue to be poor. Right. And, 
you know, as they used to say about Willie Sutton, about why did he rob banks? Because that's, that's where, where the money, money is. Was. <laughs> so that's why I went to uh, uh, went to Wall Street, and because I did have a, uh, you know, it, it's uh, the stock market. I b- still believe is intellectually very fascinating. It continues to uh, fascinate uh, me. Uh, so I think that's why I went there. That's why uh, economics and finance uh, interested me and continues to interest me uh, to this very day. But uh, uh, it was uh, uh, not being a, uh, uh, a child of the uh, Depression uh, that was what interested me in not being poor, but uh, it was kind of uh, the intellectual uh, fascination of markets that uh, and 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 a love of uh, of numbers and be, having some uh, facility with the numbers uh, that combined uh, to put me into the finance field. So there's a difference, though, in curiosity and then uh, emotional attachments. So, for example, I can walk into a casino in Las Vegas, and I'm not a big gambler myself, but it's interesting to watch how people behave in there and how the security works and you know, watching documentaries about it. It's interesting. But it's another thing to walk in there and resist the temptation to start playing blackjack or you know, hitting the slots. Did you early on make any investment mistakes that helped clarify your thinking, or did you just see the bigger picture early on and were able to resist what so many others can't? Well, I think that, uh, uh, you know, you mentioned the uh, uh, casino analogy, and um, I think that anybody who has uh, the kind of interest in finance that I have has probably something of a gambling instinct. And uh, I think that's uh, kind of in my uh, DNA. I do have the gambling instinct. But I think I'm smart enough to know that while I do like to uh, gamble, uh, I'm smart enough to know that the uh, uh, odds are against me and uh, to know that, uh, uh, let me run the numbers before I do something uh, and uh, be sure I know what I'm getting into. So I will go to a casino. I actually like playing blackjack. Do you really? But what I do is uh, I will typically try to pick a casino uh, that has a, a $5 table because I know the odds are in favor of the house, because, uh, I mean, the basic problem when you're playing blackjack is that if you break, that is to say you have a hand that goes over 21, and then the dealer breaks, you've lost because the dealer takes your money before the dealer breaks. So uh, I enjoy uh, playing it. I uh, I told you I'm uh, good with numbers. I do a little bit of uh, of card counting, and that makes it uh, just about an even game for me. <laughs> but I know that over the long pull, uh, 
the casino is going to make money, uh, and so I do it for the pleasure of playing cards, uh, but uh, I'm realistic enough to know that that's not the way to make money. The stock market, in some sense, is an analogy. It's a gambling casino, but at least in the stock market, as long as, as Warren Buffett says, you believe in this country and you believe that this country is going to continue to grow, it's a gambling casino where the odds are in your favor. Sure. So why not buy stock in the casino itself, right? Well, uh, in fact, uh, uh, that's, uh, uh, that, that's who makes money. And in fact, the uh, 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 casino stocks uh, uh, have uh, not been uh, bad investments. And uh, uh, this is, uh, you know, a not unreasonable, uh, uh, unreasonable thing to do. But again, uh, you can do that, but make sure the core of your portfolio is invested in index funds. Well, let's. We're still moving back to that, but let's take a a moment to talk about some of the, you know, the bubbles and. Irrational exuberance, you know, instances in history where I, I mean, I read these two chapters. It was it was a lot of fun to read, but a little scary, too. And we're talking everything from the tulip bulb craze to bitcoins today. Maybe give us a couple stories here that are your favorites, because I think it can really help understand that these well, are. I think cyclical. actually the 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 main uh uh, the, the the main uh, lesson is uh, not only what you should do, but the lessons of uh, how easy it is to get derailed and how easy it is to make mistakes. Uh, and one of the things uh, that uh, is one of the main lessons is Resist the temptation to think that you can time the market because people who say, gee, I know the time to get into the market, I know the time to get out, invariably do the wrong thing. And again, the data are very clear. People take their money out at the bottom of markets. They put their money in when everyone is over-optimistic. And they will tend to put their money into the market just at the time when it's kind of tulip time in the market. And there's just so much history. Uh, there was a time in uh, Holland uh, uh, in the 1600s where people got fascinated with tulip bulbs and they would pay as much for a tulip bulb as it would cost to buy a nobleman's castle. <laughs> uh, we've had these kinds of bubbles in history and being not, uh, 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 not uh, uh, basically uh, swept up in the euphoria of a bubble is just one of the best lessons that one can learn. Uh, we had them in Holland. We've had them uh, uh, at uh, the time of the so-called South Sea bubble. 
in uh, the United uh, Kingdom and Europe. Uh, we've had it recently with Bitcoin that got up to $20,000 a Bitcoin. Uh, and that's one of the things in the new edition of the book that I've uh, covered. Uh, Bitcoin uh, uh, is now selling for $4,000 a Bitcoin. It still is too high. And being careful not to get swept up in some bubble is uh, just one of the most important lessons. And again, people just consistently seem to do that. There may be a bubble, for example, that's inflating right now with cannabis stocks. Right. Uh, we are seeing uh, cannabis stocks uh, uh, skyrocketing, uh, and uh, uh, a lot of people, I, I read this every day, this is the way to get rich in the future. Uh, let's buy... Uh, uh, the stocks of these Canadian companies uh, uh, that uh, uh, are in the cannabis industry. Uh, it happens generation after generation, and avoiding the, the temptation, uh, avoiding these uh, uh, things that people are prone to take up is... Uh, one of the best lessons I can uh, give. Well, and besides the hype, there is a tendency to trust the experts, right? So analysts are interesting. I mean, you spend a little time talking about them. Their job really is to analyze stocks and companies and give recommendations. But there's a lot of inherent bias. There's a lot of just poor performance in this. And one example you gave, which is really interesting, it's a little old, but it's uh, in a 2000 Barron's article. It was a plastic surgeon, surgeon and actually a resident. And he went through some of the uh, stock recommendations on, I think it was dermatology products or burn care products. No, exactly. It was yeah. a, burn, uh, a burn care, and uh, uh, the analyst was touting the uh, stocks of, uh, of uh, pharmaceutical companies uh, uh, that uh, would um, uh, profit from uh, uh, new therapies for uh, burn victims uh, and uh, added up uh, the uh, uh, number of, uh, of scripts and the uh, uh, amount of money that would be made by these drug companies. And it was a huge multiple uh, of uh, the number of, uh, of burn victims and the uh, amount of money they might spend on the therapy, <laughs> I mean, it just made no uh, sense whatsoever. But, but look, this goes back to the fact uh, of, uh, uh, of why uh, uh, these analysts are uh, employed. They're not employed uh, by the... Uh, 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 finance companies and brokerage companies uh, that uh, employ them uh, because they are necessarily uh, giving good advice. They're employed because they make recommendations, and they make recommendations for people to go and buy and sell, and that's the lifeblood of the brokerage industry, 
And what you've got to understand is uh, that it's there, uh, it's in their interest uh, to make recommendations. It's their in, in their interest to recommend trades because that makes their profits fatter uh, and uh, uh, it's, uh, uh, it's uh, in their interest, but not in your interest. There was a wonderful book that was actually uh, published in the 1930s, and it was called Where Are the Customers' Yachts? Uh, and um, this fellow was uh, brought down to Wall Street in his first trip to New York uh, and uh, was shown... Uh, that uh, there were some docks down there with beautiful yachts, uh, and uh, he asked, uh, uh, who wants these yachts? Oh, those are the yachts of the Wall Street brokers. And he said, oh, that's interesting, but where are the customers' yachts? <laughs> and uh, that's the problem, uh, that the, uh, uh, you, you always have to remember when someone tries to sell you something or tell you to do something, is it in his or her interest or is it in your interest? Uh, and very often, uh, the recommendations are not in your interest. So let's talk a little bit about the fundamentals here in the in the bricks and mortar here. If I mean, there's there's people at different stages of their careers listening to this right now, but we'll start with maybe a resident about to you know finish their their training, go into practice. Then we'll think about somebody mid career, and then someone towards retirement. But what what would a portfolio look like for a resident coming out and saying you know they're going to start making a six figure plus income? Um, the best thing that I can tell you is to start doing a little bit of saving and do it regularly and do it when you are uh, uh, afraid of uh, the market and you think the world is falling apart uh, and do it when everyone is optimistic and do it with index funds. Uh, for example, I uh, show in the book uh, a uh, uh, an example of uh, someone who starts by putting five hundred dollars uh, in an actual uh, total stock market index fund, and then puts a hundred and fifty dollars uh, a quarter uh, into that fund regularly. And regularly, like in 2008, when we think the world is falling apart, uh, as well uh, as uh, uh, last year when the stock market was booming and everyone was thinking uh, uh, we're in a new uh, wonderful uh, uh, era uh, of continued prosperity. And uh, I give that example of people who started uh, when the first index fund became available. And the amount of money uh, that just that $100 a quarter, $150 a quarter, that it's very easy to amass a retirement amount uh, that's over a million dollars. 
And if you double it and you can put $300 a quarter in, we're talking about two, three, four million dollars. Again, this comes back to what we were talking about of the uh, the miracle of compound interest. Uh, that's what you want to get. And so the best thing I could tell a new resident is uh, start saving early and save regularly. Put it on automatic pilot. So don't even and wait till you finish. Begin with a portfolio that's all common stocks. Uh, you can get safer later in life. You can then diversify with uh, 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 somewhat different uh, assets. You can then uh, diversify into something that produces more income and less growth. But to begin with, I would say start a regular saving and investing portfolio in a broad-based, low-cost index fund. And you also talk about emerging markets as, a, as a, you know, something to think about. What is an emerging, emerging markets fund made of? I mean, what kind of countries and companies end up in this? Well, again, what I do recommend is that... Uh, uh, particularly as one broadens a portfolio. I would start with a U.S. index fund. But the U.S. is less than half of the world economy. It's actually about, only about a third of the economy. And uh, the parts of the world that are growing most rapidly are the emerging markets of the world. And so I would say... Don't simply invest eventually in the U.S., but invest in the whole world economy, and that means also including some investments in the fast-growing emerging markets such as India and China and Southeast uh, Asia and uh, the like. So uh, what, uh, how would I do that? I'd do it exactly the same way I do it for the U.S. I would buy an emerging market index fund. What does an emerging market index fund hold? It holds all the stocks that are available in India, in China, in Southeast Asia, in Latin America, in Indonesia, and the like. So let's, you know, as we're getting close to the time here, talk about some tools that can help us. When I think about technology, some things are very tempting. There's all sorts of programs and software to, again, try to time the market and do other things. And then there's software that can help us. Tell us a little bit about what to be aware of here, because you're involved with a company that is called Robo Investing, but maybe that's not a fair name for it. Tell us a little bit about that and what kind of tools could help us here to avoid the need for high-priced financial advisors and also to keep us out of trouble? Well, uh, I'm glad you brought that uh, up. I am the uh, chief investment officer of a, uh, an automated advisor. Uh, it's called Wealthfront. And uh, let me mention two things uh, about it. First of all, what we do is put together portfolios of index funds. So uh, we, uh, 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 we do what we preach. Uh, 
we have uh, not only U.S. index funds, but we have uh, index funds uh, that invest in foreign markets, that invest in emerging markets, that invest uh, in real estate. Uh, again, I uh, believe uh, you start off with a U.S. index fund, but then uh, diversification tends to reduce risks. And uh, I uh, strongly believe that uh, you should have not only U.S. stocks, but international stocks, that you should have not only equities or common stocks, but should invest in real estate. And it won't surprise you to know that the real estate that I recommend is a real estate index fund that invests in companies that hold equities in various kinds of real estate. And uh, I also uh, think that particularly as people age, they probably need a little safer portfolio and they ought to have uh, some fixed income assets, bonds uh, in their portfolio. And again, those uh, bonds are accessed through index funds because just as index funds outperform in the equity markets, they outperform in the bond market. So the first thing I would say about this uh, automated advisor is, Yes, we uh, uh, diversify broadly, but we do it all with index funds. Now, to the extent that we do uh, uh, some uh, actual uh, trading, what we do is something called tax loss harvesting. And what that means is the following. Take a period like last year when uh, the U.S. market did very well and emerging markets did poorly. If we had an emerging market index fund and it went down in price, what we would do is we would sell it to recognize the tax loss and then reinvest it in a somewhat different emerging market fund so that we keep our exposure to emerging markets but recognize the losses. And that's something that technology can help with. That Because uh, that could be uh, very time-consuming uh, and costly to go on your own, right? losses. Now, you can do this even within a U.S. index fund. Suppose that we invest in uh, a U.S. index fund and we hold all the securities. Now, even within an index fund, there are some securities that go down so that what we do will be the following. Suppose pharmaceutical stocks are down. Well, what we can do is uh, we hold a set of pharmaceutical stocks that basically mimics what the pharmaceutical stock market does. But if, uh, say, uh, Pfizer is down, we'll sell Pfizer and buy Merck, or we'll sell uh, one biotech and buy another. 
as long as you are out of the particular stock for 30 days, you can then get back into it, but recognize whatever losses there are. And what that enables us to do, and that's where technology can be helpful, we're not timing the market, uh, we're not picking individual stocks, we are just recognizing losses where we can and then reinvesting after 30 days in the same securities and keeping our exposure to different industries exactly the same. But what we do is pre-tax, we get the market return, but because we can recognize capital losses and those can be deducted up to certain amounts from one's income, we get what's an after-tax addition. So that's where technology can help. We still believe in indexing, but we'll take every technique that we possibly can use to improve our returns after taxes, and tax loss harvesting is one of the techniques that works. So there's a number of these, these firms out there now Help us. We could spend probably an hour talking about how it actually works, but is it like I, I'm driving in a Tesla and I put it on autopilot and it just drives itself, or does there still need to be someone sitting there with their hand on the wheel to make corrections? I mean, how much human involvement is there in this? There is human involvement, obviously, in telling the computer uh, what to do. There's obviously involvement making sure that you don't run into uh, tax problems uh, of uh, selling something at a loss and buying it back immediately. You've got, you can't do that, and the computer is programmed to make sure that you don't do that. The computer is also programmed uh, to uh, uh, rebalance. Uh, that is to say, uh, suppose the uh, uh, bond market has gone up and your uh, exposure to bonds has gone up. And this is actually a, something we've just done uh, over the past month. Uh, interest rates have gone way down in the past month. The holdings of bonds and diversified portfolio has gone up. The stock market was way down in the last month or so. And so we did some rebalancing a few weeks ago where we sold some bonds and bought some stocks just to keep the balance of the portfolio about where we wanted it. That's the kind of thing, again, technology can do. We're not trying to market time. No, on the contrary. We're just saying if we decide that we want a portfolio that's 60% common stocks, 20% real estate, 20% bonds, and those percentages change dramatically, we can go and uh, do the rebalancing uh, to keep the portfolio optimally uh, balanced. That's something that the automated advisor can do, and we, we charge for it, but we charge a quarter of 
rather than one, two, three, or four percent, which is what a personal advisor would charge. Sure. Well, Bert, we're coming to the hour here. Do you have time for two more quick questions and we'll wrap it up? You bet. Great. So when you first wrote the book, The Random Walk Down Wall Street, there were no index funds. Today, there's a lot. What is the percentage of invested money that's in index funds today? Uh, With regard to mutual funds, the percentage of mutual funds that are now indexed is something a little over 45 percent. It's extraordinary. So close to half of all mutual funds are index funds, and uh, I couldn't be prouder of that fact, uh, and I believe that will even grow in the future as people wise up to the fact that the emperor has no clothes, (laughs) that the actively managed funds don't give you above average performance. They give you below average performance because you still are paying high fees. And I know you get this question all the time, but I, I got to ask it. I mean, is there ever a world where we're only going to be invested in index funds or is that even possible? And what would that mean? No, I don't think so. Because remember the active management business is still very, very profitable It still will pay you to advertise that uh, uh, we really do know more than everybody else. Uh, It'll never go away, but I think that indexing could be 60, 70, 80, even 90% of the market, and there would still be more active managers than we need. So uh, it's not a worry that I have. We don't have too much indexing now. We don't have enough. And just to end things, make sure nobody forgets about all the things we've talked about. Tell us about the monkeys and the, and the dartboard. What's that story all about? Well, uh, uh, again, uh, uh, one of the analogies uh, that I uh, used in the first edition of the book was that a blindfolded chimpanzee could pick stocks as well as the experts uh, The uh, Wall Street Journal actually ran a contest uh, where uh, they had active managers picking stocks uh, and uh, uh, randomly selecting uh, the the monkey stocks. In fact, they allowed me to throw out the first dart because they started (laughs) this. They ran this for about 10 years and... uh, Again, the evidence was very clear. Uh, The darts uh, did uh, uh, just as well, if not better, than the experts. Uh, And uh, that uh, is a truth that uh, I can't emphasize enough. Uh, And if there's one lesson people uh, take from this, uh, it's, again, at least the core of your uh, fund ought to be indexed. If you enjoy picking individual stocks, fine. You can do it with much less risk if your main serious money uh, is indexed. If you want to play around with charts uh, uh, because it's fun, go do it. But again, you can do it with less risk if your serious money is indexed. Well, Bert, I, I can't thank you enough for carving out some time. I mean, I was 
first connected with your book by a college professor, read it then, then I needed to reread it again, probably my mid twenties when I was starting to play the market a little too much. Uh, it, it has stood the test of time. I mean, it's, and it's just been an honor to, to talk with you. It's, uh, I appreciate the work you've done. And I, I know a lot of other people have over the years too, because I'm sure you've gotten many letters and emails attesting to it. But uh, thank you so much for coming on. And everyone, that's Burton Malkiel. Uh, he is a retired economist from Princeton. He is currently the chief investment officer for Wealthfront and many, many, many other things, including the author of The Random Walk Down Wall Street, first published in 1973. The 12th edition of this book, after selling over a million and a half copies, just came out 10 days ago. It's, it's well worth reading if you haven't. And uh, wherever, whenever you're listening to us, take care. We'll see you here next time. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on Peer Spectrum. Please support the show by writing a review on iTunes and join the conversation at peerspectrum.com. Keep up with the latest episodes and share your ideas with us on Twitter, Facebook, or email at peerspectrum.com.